We classical Christian folks talk a lot about forming virtue in young people, but if we're not careful, we can bury them in our well-intended rules and academic expectations and never ultimately transform their hearts and what they love. And in a world of digital screens with movies and stories all around, we better be even better storytellers if we want to be persuasive in forming what our children love. But how do we do it? We do it by rediscovering the power of ancient myths. Myths, you say? Yes, as you will hear in this episode of Basecamp Live, Louis Marcos is back to tell us how and tell us more about his newest book, Myth Made Fact. Stay tuned for this episode of Basecamp Live. Mountains, we all face them as we seek to influence the next generation. Get equipped to conquer the challenges, summit the peak, and shape exceptionally thoughtful, compassionate, and flourishing human beings. We call it Ancient Future Education for Raising the Next Generation. Welcome to Basecamp Live. Now your host, Davies Owens. Welcome to Basecamp Live. Davies Owens on the line with Dr. Louis Marcos. How are you, Louis? Great to be here. Great to be back at Basecamp. It's great to have you back, Louis. This is actually your third time. I'm 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 counting. Oh. I don't know if you are. Uh, you were on a, a couple years ago. We talked about why the great books, which is a very, I think, excellent topic. And then one year ago, we actually did a podcast on why Christians should read the pagans. And that podcast was actually downloaded thousands of times. I think we hit a nerve with why that uh Great topic. And and we're back today to talk about your newest book, The Myth Made Fact, looking at a retelling of more than 50 uh, myths and its and the relevance today. Um, and I think it has a lot to do with kind of building on that conversation we had before. So uh, for those who don't know Dr. Louis Marcus, let me give you a quick intro. Professor of English and scholar in residence at Houston Baptist University. He speaks widely on ancient Greece and Rome, Lewis and Tolkien, and apologetics and classical education. His 18 books, although this may be 19, Louis, I don't know, we have to keep updating this. This is 19, that's true. (laughs) Yep, 19 books includes uh, Achilles to Christ, On the Shoulders of Hobbits, Apologetics for the 21st Century, Worldview Guides to the Iliad, Odyssey, and Aeneid, and two children's novels. Um, A lot of writing going on, Louis. We're so glad to have you back. Tell us, why did you feel a need... to write another book, and specifically this one on the myth-made fact. What's it all about? Well, I'll tell you, Davies, I think a lot of your listeners are going to remember that kind of in the earlier days of classical Christian education, one of the most popular books, especially for parents, was that book, uh, uh, what is it called? The Book of Virtues by William Bennett. Oh, yes. Right? Where he collected together stories from Greece, Rome, the Bible, early America, all these different stories, and used them to teach both virtue but also to warn us away from vice. And I remember when that book came out, it was hailed as being so new and fresh. And I thought, you know, it was a great book, but if that book had been published 100 years ago, people would have been, duh, that's how we teach virtue, through stories. And I've had a lot of books out there, Davies, but I think the most popular that I've gotten the most nice feedback from is On the Shoulders of Hobbits, The Road to Virtue with Tolkien and Lewis. And I really think that hit a nerve because I think people realize that we've got to get back to what humanity's been doing since the beginning, the way you train your young people in virtue and also warn them about vice is by telling them stories. That's how you incarnate virtue. And who was the best person for teaching through storytelling? His name was Jesus. He taught through parables. He took a truth 
and incarnated it or embodied it. And so I really felt kind of as a follow-up to both uh, Achilles to Christ and on the shoulders of hobbits that I needed to look more closely at the raw material of most of the stories, at least in the Western world, and that was Greco-Roman mythology. And I wanted to tell stories again to teach virtue the way it's supposed to be taught and has always been taught. Well, and I love your explanation because story is the currency of our modern world. And I, and just to kind of as a disclaimer here at the beginning, if someone's tuned in the podcast and thinks, oh, great, this is going to be one of those kind of uh, heavy academic, esoteric conversations about myth, let me just reassure you right now that what Louis is writing about has everything to do with our families and our schools in the middle of a pandemic trying to figure out what we're supposed to do to raise up a generation that can take on the barbarians that are at the gates. This is a very practical book. And uh, Louis, I so appreciate it. It reminds me, uh, you know, you, you're a Lewis scholar. Lewis wrote and learning in a wartime uh, about, uh, you know, the only people who achieve much are those who, uh, who want knowledge so badly they seek it while conditions are still unfavorable. So we've got some unfavorable conditions. So this is not esoteric. It's very practical. We do need it. And, you know, I'm in my 30th year teaching at Houston Baptist University. As you, as you can understand, I started teaching there at age 17, of course. 30 years I've been teaching there. And my school offers a master's in cultural apologetics. And my son is taking it online. He teaches Latin at the Geneva School in Bernie near San Antonio. And it's a degree, not just apologetics, Davies, but cultural apologetics. What that means is they not only teach the rational, the logical arguments, the scientific arguments, they also teach the imaginative arguments. And the reason we do that is because this culture, the way the world is now, postmodern, oftentimes the rational apologetics is just not enough for them. They need to have an appeal to their desire, to their imagination, to their sense of joy, their sense of wonder, their hunger for story. I mean, there would be no Hollywood if it wasn't for Marvel superheroes right now. Actually, it may die because of COVID. But right now, I mean, even much of TV is being kept alive by superheroes. People are hungry for stories and often understand who they are and what their purpose is in terms of a story. And so I still love to do scientific and logical apologetics. We don't want to lose reason. We've got the reason, but it needs to be brought together. It needs to be wedded with a understanding of imagination and how people learn through story. And we're talking about practically learning through story. That's how we become the people that can fight these culture wars, that can resist them, that can stand up against them. Reason alone is not going to work. If I'm a, a, a soldier and I'm at my post and the enemy's running at me, I can work my way through Immanuel Kant's categorical imperative to tell me why I should stay there, but it's not going to work. The only thing that's going to keep me there is when in my head I start telling a story about a hero or I start singing and I'm proud to be an American where at least I know I'm free. That is what's going to keep us strong when the barbarians are banging at the gate. So this is practical, babies. That's well said. And we're going to rest assured later in the podcast, we're going to get into actually telling some of your favorite myths of the many that you, you talk about and sort of unpacking how this works. But you make a, an excellent point, Louis. And I wonder, 
uh, you know, I think in terms of like the two ditches, if you will, that classical Christian people can fall into. I mean, we tend to be, we, we cluster people together who like things that are more rational um, and maybe, you know, get very um, defensive and, and, and concerned, maybe rightly so, about the world outside our doors, which is very experiential. And they say you know, words like passion and things that feel very uh, dangerous because they're not grounded. So we're, we're, you know, the ditches, I think, could be a lot of a lot of our graduates leave classical Christian schools and maybe the schools have failed to inculcate a love of story. And what you're left with kind of the when all the when the water, if you will, is taken out of it is just kind of what Charlotte Mason calls the the sawdust of these texts. There's just nothing palatable or joyful or transfer tran- transformative about them. And what you're saying is we 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 don't want to become just. Uh, passion emotion chasers, but we've got to make sure there's something vibrant about what we're learning. And this is part of the, the richness of myth and story. Is, is, am I saying that right? I mean, Davey, just, just to use a biblical example here, right? I can explain to you the gospel, how Christ died on, on behalf of our sins, how he forgave us and brought us back. And I can explain that to you in a very logical way. Or I can tell you the story of the prodigal son, and you can see the love of the father who runs out and embraces him and kills the fatted calf and puts a ring on his finger and tries to explain to his older son, the older brother, that your brother was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost and now is found. A lot of times they won't listen to the gospel. But if you can sneak in the parable of the prodigal son without them realizing it's a parable, They'll suddenly listen because then they'll be part of that story. They'll understand the son, but they'll also understand the love of the father. And that's how we make it concrete. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, this is a way of making the word become flesh. And myths, again, myths are the raw material of most of the stories that we're still telling in the West. I don't remember who said this, but uh, when, when when I alone have a dream, I call that a dream. But when a whole people group dream together, we call it a myth. And that's what we're capturing in these myths. We're capturing the yearnings and groanings of people trying to understand who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? What is my role in life? Uh, what does it mean to be a good person? Uh, how do you seek after virtue? All of these things were asked and embodied in these stories. And we need to mine the riches of these stories to strengthen not just the mind, but the heart and soul and imagination of our young people. And that's why we need this education. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. I think it's captured well in the, in the forward of your book, Vegan Gurian PhD, um, quotes Flannery O'Connor, and he is referencing her essay, The Nature and Aim of Fiction, and, and says the whole story is the meaning because it is an experience, not an abstraction. And I think that's really, it is what you're saying. This is experience. It's rich. It's not abstraction and sawdusty. Oh, it is. I mean, again, you can read books about humanitarianism that are cold and just, you know, uh, un- almost unhuman, or you can read the, the the Samaritan, the Good Samaritan, and understand in flesh what it means. So we're gonna in a moment we're gonna take a break, but before we do, you you were just make great lead in, Louis, because you're you're giving examples of myths slash story from the Bible, like the prodigal, and I'm sure some people are listening, going, "Amen, Louis." That's that's exactly right. We don't need a bunch of old 
pagan Greek Roman things because the Bible's got enough of them. So what do you say to people who, why, why have you spent all this time digging up something that maybe should remain buried with these old myths from Greeks and Romans? I'll tell you, you know, really to live our life, there's very little we actually need. Nobody needs a college education. Nobody even needs a high school education. But if these things are provided for us, we need to use them to become richer and fuller people that God can use in a fuller way. Again, the Bible is the only book that we need to find salvation in Christ and to understand the Christian life. But if God has allowed us to be enriched by these things, the same way that Moses was trained in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and Daniel was trained in all the wisdom, first of the Babylonians and then of the Persians, that we can take that wisdom and use it to become a fuller person. And we need to seize that opportunity. And it's there and these myths, and, 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 and not just to make us stronger people, but these myths can be a bridge between us and the rest of society that we're trying to share the full gospel of Christ with. And so even if you're not concerned about yourself, it's going to make you a better evangelist and a better bridge builder. Well said, Lou. Well, let's take a quick break. We're going to come back, and I want to just continue on this thought a little bit longer, because you, another way you've articulated that, there are these dual streams of Athens converging with Jerusalem, and then you have Christ sort of as this nexus point that all of this comes alive as these come together. So let's take a quick break. We're going to come back and, and unpack that just a bit more with Dr. Louis Marcus. Hello, my name is David Kern, and I'm with the Searcy Institute. And I'd like to tell you about a new product that we have available now called 30 Poems to Memorize Before It's Too Late. It features some of the most essential poems ever written and is a book for people who believe that the mind is worth filling with beautiful things. Each poem has been carefully selected by a panel of poets, educators, and scholars, and is accompanied by a brief but thoughtful essay that explores the poem, identifying questions to ask, images to contemplate, and forms to revel in. If you love poetry, or just want to make poetry a bigger part of your life or your school's life, then please check out 30 Poems to Memorize Before It's Too Late. You can get it right now on Amazon.com or at searcyinstitute.org slash 30 poems. That's searcyinstitute.org slash 30 poems. Welcome back to Base Camp. Dr. Louis Marcos and I talking about this wonderful new book that he has uh, actually coming out soon, written, but uh, will be out here. Um, well, let's go ahead and while I'm, I've mentioned it, I'll just go ahead and say, I guess, officially launches, Lily, what, November 23rd? And then, but pre. Right, the actual book will be in print. Yeah, but the pre sale is coming up October 13th. So it's. Uh, it's hot off the press, hot coming out of the press even. So, well, right before the break, we were talking about this tension that a lot of Christians have around, you know, gosh, reading the pagans and helping us understand that there was this interesting convergence, as you talk about, of Athens converging into Jerusalem and then Christ becoming this nexus point, this fulfillment point. So explain that. Okay. All Christians know, understand, believe, I hope, that Christ fulfilled all the Old Testament law and prophets. What I'm saying, together with folks like Lewis and Tolkien and so many others from Milton to Dante, is that Christ not only fulfilled 
the Old Testament law and prophets, he fulfilled all the highest yearnings and desires of the pagan people. Davies, it's the distinction between special revelation and general revelation. Only to the Jews did God speak directly through the prophets, through the Torah, through the Old Testament. But he didn't ignore the rest of humanity. Before Christ came, he did speak. He spoke through nature, the creation. He spoke through our conscience. But he also spoke through what C.S. Lewis called the good dreams of the pagans. And a lot of, if you go on the atheist websites, Davies, a lot of them will try to disprove Jesus by saying, look, here are all sorts of myths across the ancient world about gods coming to earth and dying and rising. Look, that proves that Jesus is just a myth. And you know what? C.S. Lewis thought that for a while until his good friend J.R.R. Tolkien said, hey, Lewis, did you ever wonder maybe the reason that, that Jesus sounds like a myth is that he's the myth made fact. That's the, the title of this book. That in other words, that, all, that throughout uh, the ancient world, because we are made in the image of God and God put a yearning in us, those yearnings manifested themselves in terms of these strange myths of heroes and dying gods and all that sort of stuff. And it should be there because God has put that need and desire. And so when God actually affects our salvation, he literally comes into human history and dies and resurrects. He has done something that does not seem 100% foreign to the pagans. Rather, what it says is, ah, what we only glimpsed in a shadow has now happened for real. And so Christ stands at the apex. He is the Lord and Savior of all the nations, not just the Jews, but of the Gentiles as well. And so Jesus fulfills the, the law and prophets, but he fulfills the myths as well, the yearnings that are still there in the modern neo-pagan who is still looking for a superhero. And guess what? Christ is the answer and the fulfillment of all those yearnings. Yeah, I love that, Louis. So there's, you know, it's a whole adage, there's nothing new under the sun. The questions that were being asked by the pagans then, the pagans now, are just life's most basic questions. You know, even even in, as you were defining the difference in a myth and a foundational myth, uh, a foundational myth is, is answering the questions of who we are and why we're here and what our purpose is. That sounds a whole lot like what a lot of young people are asking today if I'm right about that. It really is. And one of the things I did with my book is that most of them are going to be myths that people recognize, but I've got a whole section, I think it's about seven chapters, on the myths that Plato told, the greatest philosopher of all time, Plato, who said he wanted to kick the poets out of his republic, was actually a great poet himself. And a lot, it's really kind of weird. Well, Okay, think about Paul. Paul goes along with his systematic theology, and then all of a sudden, Paul loses himself in what we call a doxology. Oh, the depth and riches of the Lord. And he, turn, he becomes a poet. This is St. This is Paul, okay? Well, Plato, you know, before him, is telling us his very logical philosophy, and then he incarnates it in a myth, like the myth of the, of the allegory, the cave that some people have heard of. And just like regular myths, the myths of Plato are generally about origins or endings, right? How do we become the way we are? What is the nature of reality? What is the nature of man? What is our future destiny? What does judgment mean? Virtue, vice, all of these things are incarnated in his myths. So even the great philosopher does that. And from these myths, 
we can help to ask ask and answer or at least address the questions that these people have. Right. Who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? And, and to your point earlier, it's it's in the context of an imaginative story. So kind of the idea, like you were saying there, moving from kind of a doctrine to a doxology. That might be a good book title, Louis. You might want to use it. Oh, well, that's what it is. Because <laughs> that's where I think, again, I think a lot of times we can fall in the ditch as, as classical people of just living in the land of doctrine. And we have good doctrine, but doctrine doesn't transform the heart it's it's good to know we can measure memorize catechisms or whatever it may be but at the end of the day i love how you describe these these stories that viscerally connect with us and i think again young people today are hungry for substance and depth and if we if we can connect with them at that level we meet them where they are which again is the competition that i talk about a lot that i call the 301 problem which is we have the you know we have generally an impact in the classrooms from 7 30 to three o'clock whatever it may be but then this digital world comes piling in with and generally what is a digital world it's movies it's stories it's it's uh, it's a it's a place where students can get wrapped up in at that deeper level which is the level you're describing here in myth which is profound i think so i would just real simple i'm sure i'm not the only father i want to explain to my young son the importance of honesty and i can give him a little lecture i can give him a little sermon i can reason with him or as i did i told him the story of the boy who cried wolf and that taught him better than any lecture or sermon I could have given him. And I remember my son's such a good boy. He would try to save that little boy who cried wolf. He can't save him. He, he did it. The wolves got him. Okay. And so we make it alive. We, we make it real. We put flesh on it. Okay. We, we don't serve a deistic God, a God who's just up in the heavens doing nothing. We serve a God who is intimately involved in human history and intimately involved. He became part of a story. Okay, my introduction is called More Than Balder because C.S. Lewis said that, yes, Jesus is more than Balder and Osiris and Mithras. He's more than those myths because he's literal and real and historical, but he's not less than Balder. What that means is he's more than Boulder because he is historical, but he's not less than Boulder because like the myths, Jesus appeals also to our imagination and our yearnings and our hunger and our need. So he is our historical and literal savior, but he is also the greatest story ever told. And we are drawn into and participate in that story, which happens to be, to use another phrase Lewis loved, a true myth. He learned that phrase from G.K. Chesterton. And I would also, we're going to take a break and come back and we're going to get into actually telling some of these myths, which is going to be exciting to hear some of your favorites. But what I, I can already say from looking at the book, and I know these are not sanitized myths for the 21st century. And I love the fact you mentioned sort of the this telling of the boy who cries wolf to your son. I mean, I can imagine some people today saying, oh my goodness, that that's, that's a rather traumatizing story. And you know, we should sanitize it and make it, you know, where at the end the wolf gets adopted and he's a family pet, you know? <laughs> That's right. That's right. I mean, we don't, we don't want to talk about the harsh parts of life. And yet that is the world we're in. And this is, I think, to your point, the advantage of giving these gritty real stories is they line up with the way the world actually works. So uh, let's take, yeah, go ahead. The last sentence of my introduction says, join me then as we enter into a world that is strange and yet not so strange a world of light and of shadow, of clarity and of mystery, of beauty and of terror. That's the world. It's not sanitized. The world is a scary and dangerous place. And 
Our kids need to understand that. They need to go to ferry to a and ferry is what Tolkien called the perilous realm. Mm, well done. Well, I um, I don't know if we put a movie rating on these myths, but uh, we're going to take a quick break. Louis, come back, and I want you to share with us some of your favorite ones and how the the, the themes and their impact and and guide our lives. We'll be right back with Dr. Louis Marcus. Are your students considering taking the PSAT this fall? Many administrations have been canceled, so don't find yourself out of luck. The October 20th CLT-10 is the only online alternative that can be taken from home and it delivers next day results. Register for the October 20th CLT-10 today at cltexam.com. Registration is free. Well, Louis, we've been waiting the whole podcast to get to this section because we want to hear of the of fifty plus myths that you sorted through. Um, I can't wait to hear what your favorite ones are. Tell us what which ones stand out to you, and and why and how are those myths used again as we've talked about through this podcast in in transforming our minds, our souls, and and who we are as humans. Well, let's begin with the cover. They came up with the most beautiful cover of Daedalus and Icarus, a very well-known story. Daedalus was the great artificer. He's the one that built the labyrinth in which they imprisoned the evil Minotaur. But because King Minos didn't want him to betray the secret of the labyrinth, he imprisoned Daedalus and his son Icarus in the labyrinth, in the maze. And the only escape from the maze was through a window, but that window was on the top of a cliff that fell into the ocean. So the only way to escape would be to fly. And so Daedalus made a wooden frame. He gathered uh, feathers from the birds. He used wax to attach the feathers, and he created wings. And he and his son Icarus would fly to safety. But before they left, Daedalus told his son, now Icarus, listen, my son. Flying is dangerous. When you fly, take a middle course. Don't fly too low or the water from the sea will weigh down your wings and drag you down. Don't fly too high or the sun will melt the wax. And at first Icarus obeyed, but then he was having so much fun flying, he lost his father's words. He went too low. His wings got heavy. Then he stretched out his arms and soared up to the sun. The sun melted the wax the feathers fell off and he plummeted to his death. Now, that's better than a Marvel movie to me, Louis. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Now, <laughs> let's start by saying that the moral of this story is not if God intended us to fly, he would have given us wings. We're not talking about never having any human technology or interest. That's not what it's about. What it's about, though, is learning self-control and temperance, learning to take the middle course, listening to good advice. And I like to start with Daedalus and Icarus because so many people, Davies, including Christians, have this idea that God gave us the law to take away our freedom, to put us in a box because he doesn't want us to have fun. No, God's law is what keeps us safe. It's only within the 
the, the, the safety of the law that we have true freedom to live lives of meaning and purpose. So Daedalus does not tell his son, keep a middle course because he's a killjoy. Tells him to keep a middle course because if he doesn't, he is going to destroy himself. The best way to put this, Davies, is that the, the Mosaic law was not given to a group of free men in order to make them slaves. It was given to a group of former slaves in order to set them free. So the myth not only teaches us the importance of following the rules, it helps us to understand that the rules of God are actually life-giving rules. Well, well, and yeah, that's a great story, Lou. And again, getting to fly would be pretty amazing by anybody's uh, con- consideration of of something. So I, I think you're 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 absolutely on track with that. And and I could see you again in a context of a classroom, a young person. This is exactly the kind of daily decision making young people are trying to sort between: do I do I obey, and is obeying legalistic? And again, this is where I. I you know, we there's not a classical Christian school in the land that I'm aware of. You you go to an open house, they're not talking about we teach virtue, but virtue probably gets un, un, all too often distilled down to just here's our little set of of nicety rules that we're all going to do: wear our uniform correctly, don't let your tie sag down, cut your hair, and that's our classical Christian virtue training. And it's so much more than that. And these stories put color into these rules. My son, who's writing his own book on virtue, great kid, Alex, I told you he teaches a classical Christian school in Bernie, Texas, and to help his students understand the importance of wearing masks, he's been telling them Daedalus and Icarus Mm. to explain to them that the mask is not there to hurt you, it's there to protect you so you don't plummet into the sea. And kids are going to—I think adults respond to that, but especially kids are going to respond to a story that is human and that they can participate in. Well, it seemed to work for the prophet Nathan with David. He didn't come at it oh, with yes. guns blazing. It was a story. <laughs> yeah. So tell us right. another one. What's another one that jumps well, out to you, Louis? Another one. Again, here's one that most people recognize, but let's get the fullness of it. It's Pandora's box. Pandora was the first woman, first woman created by the gods, and Pandora in Greek means all the gifts because they showered on Pandora beauty and skill and talent. She could sing all these things. She was the perfect woman. And they gave her as wife to Epimetheus. That's the brother of Prometheus. Prometheus means foresight. Epimetheus means, you know, after sight. So he wasn't too bright. And they, they, they gave him Pandora, but they gave Pandora a box sealed. And they said, Pandora, whatever you do, do not open this box. And for the first year of marriage, everything was fine. But then curiosity ate away at pen curiosity killed the cat as we say and she said well it wouldn't hurt if i just take a peek and she opens it a crack and the lid flies open and out come death disease war pestilence all the evils of life come flying up and she slams the door shut the, the lid shut but it's too late the evils of the world have come out but then she hears a little small voice from inside the box pandora let us out. Let me out. And she opens the box and out comes hope. Right. And all the evils are in the world now, but hope is still there. Now, this is fascinating. The Greeks that came up with that story, they didn't read the book of Genesis. And yet here is a story very similar to Eve you know, taking the apple. And the apple was curiosity, but it was also disobedience. 
right? The gods gave her everything except don't open a box, right? We, we were given everything, all the fruit, but don't eat the fruit in the center of the garden, right? And yet, because of a kind of disobedient curiosity, Eve ate of the apple and ushers. I mean, this is partly a story about the origin of evil. Where did evil come from? It's a misuse of free will. It is a rebellion or a disobedience against the creator. But there's still hope. Now, in the Greek myth, that hope is very, very weak. It, it, it doesn't, it, there's not much that it can do. But most of your listeners will know that in Genesis 3, right after we fall, well, God, it could be Jesus, but, uh, you know, God speaks to them and he puts a curse on them all. But then he says, I will put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the snake. And the seed of the snake will bite his heel, but the seed of the woman will crush his head. We call this the proto-evangelium, the, the first gospel in the whole Bible. We've fallen, and immediately afterward, we are given the hope that will come in a long time later, and Satan will bite the heel when he gets the human race to crucify Jesus, but when Jesus resurrects, he crushes the head. So isn't that amazing that at the very moment an act of disobedience cuts us off from God and ushers in evil? There's a little seed of hope there. Grace and hope right How there. How do the pagans understand that? that they, right? That's exactly right. And I love that. That's a great a great point that you said earlier. A lot of times, especially our students head off to college, and that's one of the first things they get in their religion class is that you know the Bible is basically just a, a plagiarism of, of the ancient Greek stories. It's like, no, these are universal human questions and problems. One of the things I want to point out here is we're, just as we're kind of closing things out, Louis, the book itself, what I love that you've done, if, if people have not seen it, because obviously it's not officially out yet for people to get their hands on it, it's not just the telling of the story, but you actually go through here and you give a, a, a reflections and notes and applications. So if you're a, um, if you're not as well versed in it, you not only get the backstory, but you get those connection points as you're describing right now, putting it back into scripture and, in the, and then into life. So talk a little bit about just how you see the book being applied here. Yeah. So this is a book that, of course, is perfect for teachers and students, classical Christian schools, class university model schools, homeschoolers. But it also can be used if you're part of a Bible study, man's Bible study, women's Bible study, whatever, a group that gets together because I have given, these are not simple questions. These are open-ended questions that will force you to explore the nature of what, you know, what does it mean to be human? What, who is God? Every, uh, every uh, chapter has lots and lots of scripture verses. I hope that a lot of people will read this book as I would if I bought it devotionally every night read one chapter and reflect on the story, the applications, think about the question. If you're somebody that journals, this is a great way to take a prayer journal and try to answer some of those questions, reflect on some of the scriptures. So it is multifaceted. It's good for teachers because it's got lots of notes and lots of uh, appendices and, and, and uh, indexes and things like that. It's meant to be a one-stop thing. It can be used in a whole variety. And one of the things I've done, Davies, I've, I've noticed more and more more, that as our attention spans get less, people like short chapters. And so these chapters are not only short, they're broken into three short sections within of about five, 600 words. So it is very good to read devotionally in the morning or at night and to draw you into this world. And it will help you, I think, be a better evangelist. As well, well. I, love, I love all the ways you described to apply the book. I think uh, certainly a lot of us as parents, even with high schoolers, think, uh, what do we read to our kids? A lot of us assume we should stop reading when our kids are out of grammar school. I could see this being a wonderful 
uh, resource to read to a high schooler, even though they may know the story better than us, uh, depending on their school. But uh, I think exactly, it's, and, yeah. and I do, you know, because too many times people want to understand the myth and they go to Wikipedia. Yeah, At the beginning of every chapter, I am retelling the myth dramatically in my own voice, as if I were a storyteller. I want this book to be read aloud. And one thing that first attracted me to classical Christian education is that they continue to read out loud to their students, even in high school. That is that is part of how learning the oral tradition of passing it down. That's what makes it come alive. And that's why I'm glad a lot of people listen to books on tape when they commute now, because that's one of the ways to experience. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's a good point, Lou, kind of ending on that note that we, you know, oral culture was where most of humanity uh came through. And then we've of late kind of went through a period of very written. We've really kind of gone back to your point. Uh, here we are on a podcast. So, uh, you know, yeah, that's I, true. I, People I, are ready to listen again. I, when you yeah. listen, you have to use your imagination. Exactly. So you have to wonder all those details. So Louis, so excited about your book. Thank you for the work you've put into this. I, I can't encourage people enough to get a copy of it and to, uh, I'd, I'd love to hear how, it, how you, you apply it into these various settings, whether it's classrooms or with your children or uh, wherever it may be. And of course, if you'd li- like to ask questions to Louis, I know he would love to respond. You can certainly uh, email us info at basecamplive.com. Louis, what's, uh, how can others find you? Uh, obviously, the classical the academic really press. To go yeah. to Amazon and type in my name, Marcos with a K. It's a Greek name and my Amazon author page. And also I have a YouTube channel now. So if you type in Lewis Marcos with a K, you can watch all different videos I've made on Lewis and Tolkien and all different things like that. And feel free to email me uh, if you have any questions. And I am planning to be at the next ACCS conference. Uh, so I hope I'll see some people. I think it's meant to be in Frisco uh, near Dallas. That's, they are going to do it there. Yep. And we'll definitely uh, we'll definitely see you there and, and maybe the SEL conference as well. And then yeah, and uh, and then just a final footnote: you mentioned um, classical. Uh, you you also have a, a series of, of lessons there for people that yes. want. What I've done, classical. You is one of it's one of those subscription things where you can watch all of their lecture series. And I did a lecture series based on the book. It's uh, eighteen thirty minute lecture, so it's about nine hours altogether. But I don't read the book. I retell the myths in a different way and and arrange them in a different way. And I'm talking very directly to people. And it's a great thing you could use in the classroom or just yourself to learn. And it is video. But when I did the video, Davies, uh, I'm not basing anything on images. So in other words, you can listen to it and still get the full. I was I was conscious that a lot of people were going to listen and not just watch. You can also watch. I'm always encouraged by people uh, listening to Basecamp that will tell me, "Yeah, I, I, you're my favorite thing to listen to when I'm washing dishes." Others said, "While well, we're, I'm, I'm cutting, mowing the grass, I listen to you." So, who knows where people are right now, Louis, listening to us? We appreciate them listening, and we appreciate you being back on Basecamp Live. So, Doctor Louis, thanks Marcus, so much. It was great. Love to come again. Thank you. We will definitely have you back for a fourth time. Thanks so much. Take care. That's a wrap on another episode of Basecamp Live. Guys, we know it's not easy raising the next generation. This idea of ancient future education is valuable and important. We are so excited about it, and we would love to hear from you and support you in what you are doing. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Basecamp Live. Also, send us an email at info at basecamplive.com. So until next time, let's keep climbing the mountain before us together.